I like to ask people from time to time a very simple question. A question that brings about oftentimes a very revealing answer. And this is the question. Are you a sinner? It's a simple question, right? The most recent time I asked this to somebody was just about a month ago. I was trying to determine whether or not this person was a genuine believer. Where they generally knew and trusted in Jesus alone. And I just asked that simple question within the conversation. Are you a sinner? And the question to that, or the answer to that question is often fairly revealing. And you can see the reactions from people as they attempt to answer that question. Oftentimes people want to jump back and say, well, what do you mean by, by sinner, right? When you, when you think about a sinner, what do you mean? Like we want to qualify it. We want to be able to put it on some level. So when you say, are you a sinner? We want to be able to put it somewhere. So for instance, am I a sinner like Adolf Hitler? <laughs> am I a sinner like Ted Bundy? Or am I a sinner, you know, like, like everybody else? Like everybody else is a sinner. I'm like them. You know, I lied a few times growing up. I stole some candy from a store. You know, petty stuff. Little sinner stuff. Right? So that on the inside, we can feel good about ourselves. Because sure, we're sinners. But you know what? Everybody's a sinner. And the times that I've asked that question to people, I've never had somebody say, like the Apostle Paul, I'm the chief of sinners. Never had somebody say, I am wretched. I'm a monster of iniquity. I'm filled with sin. But let's go ahead and presume that all of you understand that fact. That apart from Jesus, we are monsters of iniquity. That the only good in us being Jesus himself. If it's true that you are a sinner, then what on earth are you doing here today? If worship is what we say it is, That the congregation is called into the presence of Almighty God to worship Him. Yet everyone within the congregation is a sinner. Then how on earth can we stand in the presence of a holy God? This morning we've already sung that, haven't we? We've sung, Lord of heaven and earth, holy, 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 right? Be unto your name. We are the broken. You are the healer. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. So how can you come into His presence as a professing sinner and worship Him, the one who is holy? I think the passage before us this morning helps us to understand a couple of the main pieces that are involved when sinners come before God in worship. That there are two main items that need to be taken together to come before God as a sinner in order that we can worship Him properly. And here they are. A proper sacrifice and a proper heart. When you come to worship on Sunday mornings, you need to bring the proper sacrifice and you need to bring the proper heart. Look with me again at verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 4. Now Adam knew his wife, his Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore Abel, his brother. 
So in Genesis chapter 4, we begin to be introduced to a couple of more characters within the story of the book of Genesis. The very first people. So of course you have the Lord God. He's the eternal God, right? And then you have um, Adam. You have Eve. You have the serpent that we've been introduced to. Maybe you can consider the cherubim that's guarding the tree of life as one of the characters that we've been introduced to. But now we're beginning to be introduced here in Genesis 4 to Adam and Eve's first two children, and they are sons. You see in verse 1 that the text says that Adam knew his wife Eve. This is a word for intimacy. The Bible is never overt or gratuitous with details. It simply states, indicates that in the course of time of marriage, Adam knew his wife, he was intimate with his wife, and a child was conceived that they named Cain. And so this is a simple response from Adam and Eve to God's initial command in Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? That God commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And so here they are in Genesis 4, beginning to be fruitful and multiply. But then there's another son that is born in verse 2, and his name is Abel. The name Abel comes from the Hebrew word that means, that, that's hevel. That can mean a couple of things. It can mean vanity. Some of you who know the book of Ecclesiastes, you remember that it starts, it starts out, vanity, all is vanity. Hevel, all is hevel. And so it can mean vanity. But it can also have another meaning. Breath or vapor. And when you think about Abel's life, his own name is a little bit of a prophetic ring to it, doesn't it? Because his life would be a breath. It would be short It wouldn't be long. Abel was not going to live 900 years like his father was going to live. His life would be a breath. It would be a vapor because, as was read, Cain would kill him. Yet more information is given about these brothers in the rest of verse 2. It says, Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And so Abel was likely the shepherd over smaller animals, sheep, goats, creatures like that. Cain was a worker of the ground. He would till the ground and he would toil over it. And so both of these would have been very good occupations. Obviously, when you consider an agrarian society, right? Way back then, you have Adam, then he has two sons. Okay, I need one to do some gardening and I need another one to do some shepherding, right? To manage the sheep. So Abel was subduing and having dominion over the animals and Cain was having dominion over the ground, bringing forth Produce, produce. So you have a gardener and you have a shepherd. But as we continue to think about these two, one thing that we cannot do is get too far away from Genesis 3.15. Remember what we looked at last week? Genesis 3.15? That that verse is going to inform so much of how we view the rest of the book of Genesis. Remember that God promises the snake. And he talks to him. He says, you have the seed of the snake and you have the seed of the woman. And that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the seed of the snake. So the head of the snake is going to be bruised and the heel of the seed of the woman is going to be bruised. And so as the Bible continues to unfold and the people on its pages, they begin to funnel into these two groups of people, into these two camps. You have the seed of the woman and you have the seed of the snake. And so within our passage this morning, who is the seed of the woman? When is the seed of the woman going to come? Is the seed of the woman going to deal with the seed of the snake immediately? There's an indication in verse 1 that that Eve has a little bit of hope. She knows the promise from God 
that somebody would bruise the head of the snake. And so in verse 1, she gives birth to a son. And she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I kind of feel that way after having two daughters and now about to have a son. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Right? The Lord has helped Eve to have this child. That she has heard the promise of God that a man would come and do away with the serpent. And so for Eve, she's thinking, I've gotten this son with the help of the Lord. Is he going to be the one that's going to deal with the snake? Is it going to be the firstborn? Is it going to be Cain? Yet as the rest of the story unfolds, most of which we'll look at next week, we begin to see the tragedy unfold. That even in the rest of the Bible, it is clear that Cain was not going to be the seed of the woman. In fact, he was going to be the seed of the snake. He was going to follow after the snake. And we even have a verse that completely proves that. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, John says this, We should not be of Cain, like Cain, who was of the evil one. He squarely puts Cain into the camp of Satan. He puts Satan, or Cain into the camp of the seed of the snake. And so although chapter 4 begins with this hope that Eve has concerning her firstborn son, he turns out to not really be the seed of the woman. He is the seed of the snake. He is the evil one. And instead of crushing the head of the snake, he crushes his brother's head instead. And he kills him. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 tells us the opposite about Abel. It says that Abel was commended as righteous. That he had faith. But back in our text, we see that there comes a day when Cain and Abel both bring to the Lord a sacrifice. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And so within these verses, I think you begin to see the two main points that I want to flesh out for us this morning. That you must have the proper sacrifice in worship. And you must have the proper heart in worship. There's been a lot of discussion in regard to this passage, in regard to um, the offerings that Cain and Abel brought. And a lot of people have thought that, well, maybe God didn't regard Cain's offering because it wasn't bloody. Because it wasn't a, a sacrifice of an animal. Yet nothing from the text indicates that to be true. Cain would have seen many offerings before. He would have seen his father give offerings. He had probably offered offerings before along with his brother. Yet nothing from the text indicates that God was displeased with the offering because it wasn't an animal. In fact, not all the offerings that were given by the Jews later on were animals. They, they weren't all bloody. Consider the fact that they had the grain offering that they would give. There, there was no blood in the grain, of course. But there is something here that I think that we should stop for a moment and consider, and that Cain and Abel, despite the fact that we'll see the conditions of their hearts, that they couldn't be any more different, that these two men both came into the presence of the Lord properly, the way that God wanted them to. And I think that we would do well to be conscious ourselves that we as a church come into the presence of the Lord the way the Lord wants us to. Would you ever enter the presence of the president or a king of some nation in a way that he didn't want you to? Of course not. 
You would always be sure that any time you had that kind of a privilege to step before even a human being who has great power, you would make sure you came into their presence exactly how they wanted you to. And that's important for us as well when we come before the Lord. There are two main kinds of worship that are displayed for us in the Bible. We have this this personal lifestyle of worship, but then we have more of a formal congregational worship. And you see this fleshed out throughout the Bible, that God's people assemble to worship Him. But then there's also this personal worship, a lifestyle, like, like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, where he tells them to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. That we're to have these lives that are lived in a constant state of worship. That our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so He resides in us if we're true believers. And so everything we do should be worshipful. Everything you do in life. When you, well you're not going to work tomorrow. But, well some of you might. But a lot of you have a day off tomorrow. Well whatever you do tomorrow. Whether you're fishing. Whether you're eating. Camping out. Whatever you're doing. You do that to the glory of God. Right? When you go to work the next day. You do that to the glory of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything that we do in life should be done in an act of worship to our great God for His glory alone. So this is that, that personal, individual worship to Him as our God. But then there is a corporate side to worship that God requires of us. This, this is what we're doing right now. A lot of times, and I think we would do well to check the way we talk about worship. Like if I say worship and all you think about is music, you don't have a full enough understanding of worship. Worship is not just music. So sometimes people will leave church and they'll, they'll say, oh, the worship was pretty good today. That preaching was all right. right? It, as though those are kind of like different things. But the whole of the worship service, this is our worship. That's why when Jeff came up, he said, we offer the Lord our, our, our finances, our, our money, as an act of worship to our God. That the whole worship service is contained Within this, And it is important that even as we come before the Lord as a congregation, that we offer to Him the kind of worship that God would want from us. That we would enter His presence the way He's told us to enter into His presence. This is growing concern in evangelicalism. As you look at the evangelical church across America, across the world, that most Christians seem to have the idea... That when we come to worship, we can just do whatever we want. That whatever we do between 10 o'clock and 11.15 or whatever on Sunday morning, that God's just thrilled with whatever we do. And I think that's really dangerous. I agree with one confession when it says that He may not be worshipped according to human imagination or inventions. When we come into the presence of God as a congregation, we come into His presence as His people. And we, we would do, and we should do what He wants us to do when we're in His presence. That's why at Windsor Christian Fellowship, that we aim to have really simple, yet biblical worship services each Lord's Day. Worship services where we do what God commands us to do in worship. Not just whatever we want to do. So I I never sit down in my office and have a few people come and get together and say, what can we do this week? (laughs) What will the people really want us to do? What will the people really like for us to do? That's not how we do it. That's not how we should be doing it. We don't just invent things and just say, oh yeah, God's just going to be happy with whatever we do during this time. 
Sometimes you'll hear people say stuff like, well, why don't you do this? And why don't you do that? You know, such and such church is doing this. And, and that makes people want to go. And friend, I, I just think that's playing with fire. I just think it's a very dangerous thing to do. That we are to approach God the way that he wants us to approach him. And so what do we do within our worship services? And some of you might be thinking, well, it's really not all that clear. But friend, there are so many clear things within God's word that we should be doing. So, Ligon Duncan helps us to to understand this well. He sums up the Bible's teaching well. That we, we preach the word. We read the word. We sing the word. We pray the word. And we see the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. That all of these things are required of us in worship. And so we do them. Because we know it pleases God. And so at the end of a worship service, we can say, Lord, your word was preached and we read it and we prayed it and we sung. And this was all given to you for your glory. And we can know that he is pleased with that so long as it is offered with the right kind of heart. So, So think with me. You know God wants you to live your life and worship to him every day, all day. You know God wants you to gather with your brothers and sisters corporately, worshiping him together every week. And and many of you are faithful in that. And so like Cain and Abel, you're faithful in coming to worship. You come before God. You come before Him in the way that He wants you to. But let me ask you, what did you bring today to offer up to God? What did you bring today? Did you bring a, a sacrifice to worship this morning? When Cain and Abel approached the presence of God, they brought something with them. They brought produce. They brought an animal. All throughout the scriptures, when people come to worship God, they don't come empty-handed. They come with something in their hands. They do not become before the Lord empty-handed, which is talked about in Exodus and Deuteronomy. When they come before the Lord with their, their hands are holding a bull or a goat or a sheep, or they're holding a couple of birds or grain, you never come before the Lord empty-handed. And so I ask you, have you appeared before the Lord this morning empty-handed? The answer should be no. And I think that any time you gather for corporate worship, you should be utterly conscious of the fact that you do not come here empty-handed. And you should walk into those doors and be cognizant of the fact that you've got something in your hands. But what is, what is in your hands? Who or What? Any true believer who comes to worship doesn't come empty-handed. They come with the sacrifice of Jesus. You come into the presence of God as a sinner, but not just any sinner. They come, we come into the presence of God as forgiven sinners. We come into the presence of God corporately with other Christians, and we all come holding the same sacrifice. We come holding and offering the same one, Jesus Christ. Not as though we're killing him again and again within our worship services, but we're saying in terms of sacrifice and not coming empty-handed, we're pointing to the cross. That is where our sacrifice is. And So how can you and I come into the presence of God as sinners? Because God gave himself as the great sacrifice so that we could come into the presence of God. Isn't that incredible? That as a sinner, God, you cannot come into God's presence. So what does He do? He sends the Son of God, God Himself in the flesh, to die 
and to reconcile you to himself so that you can. Isn't that good news? God sends God so you can come into God's presence. This is the only way. It was the only way that the holy God, he would make a sacrifice, lay his life down as a ransom for many. And so that when we come before him this morning, we're holding Jesus and him alone as the sacrifice. So within our text this morning, both Cain and Abel, they've brought their sacrifice. As I mentioned earlier, I think both of their sacrifices were proper. I think that they were the kinds of sacrifices that God would be pleased with. Yet it becomes very obvious for some reason that God's just not pleased. Look at verse 3. In the course of time, that means after the days, there might have been a a set, I I think this is a more formal corporate worship. They're doing it together. And it really means after the days, which could mean some sort of formal period of time. But in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And the question we have to ask is why? Here again, I think that Cain and Abel both brought the acceptable offerings to God. And so the question is, why did God have regard for Abel's offering and not Cain's? And I think that the answer is within the way that Moses uh, carefully crafts and phrases all of this. The indication here is that Cain brought some of the fruit that he had. He brought some of the fruit that he had. But Abel brought the first fruits. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock. And I think the indication is that Cain brought what was left and Abel brought what was first. So what's going on here is ultimately a matter of the heart. God looks at the sacrifice of Abel. God looks at the sacrifice of Cain. And when he looks at these two sacrifices, what God sees is their hearts. He looks at the offering that Cain brought, right? Probably this this beautiful produce of some kind. You can imagine a farmer's market loaded group of produce sitting there on the altar or however they're offering it, right? But then God looks at it and what he sees is not ultimately this bounty. What he sees is Cain's heart. And then you have Abel on the other side. He brings the firstborn of his flock, the number one, the best. And it even says that he brings the fat portions, which would have been the best part of the animal. And God sees in that fat portion from the firstborn of the flock, he sees the heart of a righteous man. That is giving his offering in faith. And friend, I think the principle is still the same for us. That God looks at what we present to him as our sacrifice. And within that sacrifice, when you come and gather for worship, God sees your heart. Does not the Bible say that man looks on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart? That we can come and we can be here 52 Sundays a year with smile, say hi, shake hands with everybody in the room. But the only one who's not fooled is God. There are many people who are a part of good, solid churches and they think about all the things that they do for God. All of their good works. How they 
teach this class or taught this class for 30 years or whatever, and they counsel these people, they sing in the worship team, they work on the building, they help people, they do all kinds of ministry. And from the outward appearance, it looks like Cain's big offering of produce, doesn't it? It's like, wow, look at all of that. What an incredible sacrifice. And God, look at that sacrifice that we offer. And it is like a mirror, not of a heart of devotion and worship to Jesus. It is not a mirror of the heart of faith. It's the mirror of the heart of a wicked person. That we offer all of this and look at all that I've done. And God sees right through it. And He sees our heart. The Bible says in Proverbs, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. Thankfully, when we come into His presence, we have the firstborn, if you will. We have the only begotten Son of God. We have Jesus Himself, and He is the only offering that will do. But as you live your life with God as your audience, do you present to God the first fruits of your energy, the first fruits of your time, with a heart of adoration, with a heart of faith, or do you bring to God that which is left over? That which is born from a, a calloused and a cold heart. When you come to worship on Sunday morning, are you like Jesus? Are you honoring God with your lips, but in your heart, you're far from Him? And I think that the way we structure our weeks is really an indication of how we think when all, all of this happens. So a lot of times we think about Sunday and it's more of the end of the week instead of the beginning of the week. But of course, Jesus rose on Sunday, marking it as the beginning of the week. And so often we go through our week and when we come to Sunday, we're exhausted from work. We're exhausted from play or yard work the day before, which obviously there's nothing wrong with those things. But so often we're like, okay, I'm here on Sunday morning. Sing songs, hear the sermon, go on our way. And it's just kind of like the tail end of everything instead of the beginning of everything. Jesus rose from the dead and the church has gathered on the first day of the week for the last 2,000 years. And so that Sunday morning, this time of corporate worship, don't look at it as something like, oh, i got to get there and do that. No, it's the first. It's the beginning of the week. It's the top of the peak so that everything melts down from there. The worship service and we sing and we're encouraged. We interact with our brothers and sisters and that just melts into the rest of our week and helps us so much and encourages us. It's life-giving water. It shouldn't be the bottom of the mountain. It should be the peak. I encourage you to think of it that way. And to offer a sacrifice to God that costs you something. I love what David says in 2 Samuel. These animals were offered to him as a sacrifice. And this is what he says. He says, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. David didn't want to give to God something that cost him nothing. Friend, God gave everything for you. God gave His only Son to die on the cross for you. So how then do we stand by and just kind of throw Him up an hour here? And That's just not the way to think. We give Him everything. We give Him our whole week. We give Him every day, every moment. We want to live it for Him. We want to put all of our desires on the back burner and put all of His on the front and fulfill His will for us. Cain did not give what cost him. And God knew it. Abel did give what cost him, and God knew it. And so at the core of our worship, whether it is that personal throughout the week, whether it is corporate when we come together, what God foundationally wants is your heart. 
The greatest commandment, is it not to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and strength? God doesn't want just a piece of you. He doesn't want just an hour. He wants it all. He wants your heart. He wants your soul, your mind, and your strength. But we give Him so little, so little of our time and energy and our resources. And God sees right through all of that, just like He saw through Cain's sacrifice. The New Testament sheds a bit more light on the sacrifice of Abel in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11 and verse 4. And it indicates that Cain did not offer his sacrifice in faith, but Abel did. Abel's heart was there. Abel's heart was in it. He, he, he wasn't offering the firstborn and the fat portions with hesitation. It's, this is God's. Take it, God. I want you to have it. In Hebrews chapter 11.4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel is still speaking. And so what do we bring to worship? We come with Christ. The pleasing sacrifice to God on behalf of our sins. Thank God for His sacrifice for us. That we can bring Him every Lord's Day to worship. But we also come with hearts of faith. That it is through faith that we look to our sacrifice. It is through faith that we are made righteous. And God accepts our offering. So long as it is done in faith. With a heart of love. Because whatever proceeds from faith is what God accepts. But He does not accept anything that proceeds from faith is sin the bible says so when we come to worship say this is our sacrifice jesus he died for me and he lived for me and he rose for me and i believe that by faith and i trust in it so that when we offer what we offer in corporate worship and it is if it is done with faith in faith with a heart of love this is the offering that god accepts Lord, I pray that you'll accept our offering this morning. Our worship. Lord, our, our hearts, we, we want you to have them holy. We want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want to issue these to you in faith, trusting you with them, knowing that you will guide and love us as only you can. Lord, I pray that we will not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, but we'll be like Abel, offering our sacrifices in faith. Ultimately, we're so thankful for our great sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for giving us.